Welcome back to our To The Point podcast. I'm Cindy Arnson, the director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program, and I'm your host for this episode. My guest today is the Honorable Andres Alamán, the Foreign Minister of Chile. He's joining me from Santiago, Chile, to discuss a number of really important topics. First, what Latin American countries, and Chile in particular, would like to see from the new Biden administration. Second, what he sees as the prospects for a peaceful, democratic transition in Venezuela. And finally, what's happening in Chile as the country gears up to elect members of a constitutional convention that will be drafting a new constitution. Foreign Minister, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, you, Cindy. Uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for me just to, to be here with you in this open conversation. Our pleasure. Obviously, Chile and Democracia has had a long and fruitful relationship with, uh, with this country. Um, but President Biden has promised a new era of re-engagement with the Americas. He's made issues that are of great concern to Chile, climate change, the green energy transition, key aspects of his policy towards Latin America. So let me just open by asking you, what does Chile really want from the United States at this point? Uh, it has a free trade agreement. It is leading the Latin American region in vaccinating its population. Um, what are things that the United States could do that would help Chile meet its range of challenges. Okay, Cindy, uh, thank you for the for the question. I think it's a great way to to start the the conversation. As you say, Chile and the U.S. is very stable, profound, uh, deep, and long-standing uh, bilateral relations. Uh, so, what we can expect? Uh, going directly to the point, uh, we are clear that. Uh, the Biden administration has a lot of priorities in terms of domestic policies and international policies. In domestic policy, uh, this idea of uh, unifying the country again is, of course, something that will demand a lot of political efforts. And in the international uh, field, bueno, rejoining the international organizations, rebuilding the Atlantic Alliance, facing the challenges posed by Russia and by, and by China, uh, look at how they stand in, in Iran. Uh, always the Middle East is important for the U.S. So what uh, realistic we don't expect is a 180 uh, turn in terms of the priority towards the region. But what we really expect is a new approach towards the region. If President Biden uh, thinks, as he thinks, that uh, Latin America has a, a strategic importance towards the U.S., then what we expect is a consistent approach to that. And from my point of view, uh, that means, uh, Cindy, at, at least uh, two things. A new policy, uh, I mean, in, in the two issues that were the main priorities of the Trump administration, uh, Venezuela and, and China. Venezuela with the strategy of maximum pressure and China with the strategy of what I call uh, the idea of blocking the possibilities of China in the region. Uh, so I think uh, we need two different new approaches on Venezuela and a new approach on China. And then I would say we, we also, of course, I'm considering that, that the Biden administration is going to have a, a policy on migration, 
but basically focused on Central America. But at least, at least, uh, Cindy, the agenda uh, needs to have four subjects. Number one, response to the pandemic. Number two, help in terms of the recovery, economic recovery of the region. Third, uh, climate change. And fourth, uh, governance, uh, democratic governance, uh, human rights, uh, respects, uh, tackle of corruption. I would say that these four subjects, are uh, what they need is, of course, a dialogue between the U.S. administration and the countries of the region in terms of how, how pushing forward that agenda. Do you think that the upcoming summit of the Americas, which is due to take place in the United States either later this year or at the beginning of next year, will provide an opportunity for that kind of dialogue? Or are there other places where it should take place? The dialogue uh, must start uh, right now. The summit that is going to take place at some point of the, of the, of the, of the year, by the, by the second semester, from my point of view, uh, must be uh, a different summit. Uh, if we use all this month uh, we have ahead, ahead of the, before the, the summit, in terms of having a profound dialogue uh, between the countries of the region, the organizations of the region, and the U.S. administration, then you can have a summit with a very strong outcome. What I see is that at least in this, uh, what I call the, the need of a change of approach towards Venezuela and towards China, and in this idea of uh, four subjects of the agenda, of the agenda, uh, I think that the priorities of the U.S. and the priorities of the region can match. I don't see a huge difference between uh, having uh, that priorities. More than that, what I see is a, a, a possibility of, of a strong convergence. Now, what is the problem? Subject number one uh, is, the, is the response to, to pandemics. Subject number two is the help in terms of economic recovery. Uh, subject number three has to do with combating uh, climate change. But the point is that the three of them need resources. So the key thing here is not only have a dialogue for establishing the priorities or the subjects of the agenda, but also to be able to establish in, in a common ground the way of landing these, uh, these, uh, these priorities. So what I think is that month ahead must be used for having this dialogue and reach the summit with the previous consensus so you can have a summit uh, very fruitful. Thanks for that. You mentioned Venezuela as one of the two areas that needs a new uh, approach. Um, Chile has been part of the Lima Group since its formation in 2017. Um, the Lima Group has sought a peaceful and negotiated settlement to the Venezuelan crisis, something that looks more and more distant and, and remote. And since the formation of the Lima Group, there have been elections in the region that have led to governments that are not necessarily uh, with the same position vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela as uh, their predecessors. So what do you think now um, Latin American countries can do collectively uh, or through the Lima Group or some other incarnation uh, to help foster democratic political change in Venezuela? What is needed towards Venezuela is what I call a double convergence. Let's say, uh, today, in terms of the international community, you have Grupo de Lima, then you have Grupo de Contacto. Chile is part of both. 
then you have a group of Stockholm, then the US is by, by itself is a, is a principal actor in the, in, the, in, in the sea. So what is needed is that the international community come, uh, come together in terms of having a, a new approach towards, towards uh, Venezuela. And also it's needed because this is a must of any transition to democracy to have a more, uh, a more united opposition, not uh, as fragmented as is today. What is, from my point of view, Cindy, the main problem of the, let's say, the, the, approach, the approach up to now? Uh, you basically have two models of transitions. Model one is uh, when, uh, when the transition takes place, when the, the dictator is overthrown, uh, flips the, the country, or the regime collapses. That's model number one. And model number two is a model in which the dictator is present, but nevertheless, democratic spaces are start opening, and finally, they end with a political defeat of the regime. The point is that up to now, the strategy has been one thinking that transition in Venezuela will follow model number one. What I really think is the transition in Venezuela will follow uh, model number two. That means what is needed is a negotiated a solution in terms of, of the future of, the, of, of Venezuela. And also another thing is indeed think very important. We Chileans have a lot of experience in, with these uh, transitions. We live ourselves, our own transition. What, what we know about transitions? We know about transitions at least four things. Number one, international pressure is very, very important, but by any means is enough to make, uh, to solve the problem. Number two, a united opposition is needed. Number three, the social and peaceful mobilization of the people, the engagement of the civil society with the process is, of course, a need. And four, what is needed also is to have a focal point of attention without distracting efforts. And this is to have some sort of democratization, democratization process in which the regime is obliged by all these elements to open spaces to a democratic, uh, let's say, confrontation, peaceful confrontation in which the regime can be defeated. So I would say that if you have that in mind, the, 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 the approach of the international community must be just to push forward these four elements that uh, history relates as the way of having successful transitions to democracy. Thank you for that. If I could follow up, does the policy of U.S. comprehensive economic sanctions, secondary sanctions, individual sanctions, help or hurt in this process? As you mentioned, they were part, uh, under the previous U.S. administration, of a policy aimed at regime collapse, at uh, the implosion of the system. How do you see sanctions working, and should they be lifted, and in response to what? Uh, the, the, your, your last sentence is very important. Leave, uh, lift sanctions towards what? Uh, with what in exchange? Uh, sanctions, as, uh, as international pressure, are important elements just to oblige the government, uh, the regime, the dictatorial regime, to come to the table of the of, of negotiations. Uh, see what happened, Cindy, this week? with the sanctions of the European Union. 
sanctions uh, are um, useful, but in the in a in the in a whole process by itself alone, uh, they are not the key to the to the solution. And here we go again. This has much to do with uh, the old story of carrots and uh, and six. Um, so part of the international pressure must be sanctions. Yes, not only not only the the the, the process must be uh, followed by that. Thanks. If we could switch for a moment to Chilean domestic politics, obviously those of us who follow the region are well aware that there's um, there are elections for a constituent assembly coming up um, in about eight weeks. Um, do you think that this process of constitutional reform, which will result in a, a subsequent vote on a new constitution, um, will make the Chilean system more representative overall? Do you think it opens up a Pandora's box of potential um, problems? And do you think that it's capable of overcoming this wide division between Chilean politicians, economic, the economic elite, and civil society uh, in general? Let me let me start saying that uh, up to now we can um, we can take some lessons of our experience. Uh, I will start saying that lesson number one: a successful country as Chile, because the path of Chile in the last thirty years is not a path of failure; it's a path of uh, success. Uh, we reduce uh, poverty from more than seventy percent than less than ten percent. We rank number one in the, in the Human Development uh, Index. Uh, we are with Costa Rica and Uruguay, the less corrupt uh, countries in, in, in the region. Uh, if you look at the, the quality of our democracy, following Freedom House Index or the Economist Index, we rank in a very good position. What, what I'm trying to say is that the first lesson is even successful countries are not immune to social outbreak, outbreaks. Lesson number two, the way to process a, a social outbreak must be through the means of democracy. What we have done in Chile is to channelize the, the outbreak process in an institutional, democratic, uh, highly participatory uh, political process. And in that political process, the, the, the signals and the rules are oriented to close the gap between elites and citizens. Uh, really, Latin America is a region of gaps. We have a, an economic gap um, expressing inequality. We have social gaps. We have gender gaps. We have ethnic gaps. And as your question states, we also are facing now these uh, gaps between elites and society. Why I think, uh, Cindy, our process is well-oriented? There are four reasons. Reason number one, in the plebiscite of October, Chileans decided to have a new constitution uh, and, and draft a constitution, what is called from a, a blank sheet, starting from scratch. But also, the Chileans were asked uh, what kind of, of organism, what kind of body, what kind of convention they wanted to draft the constitution. And there were two possibilities. Possibility number one, a, a, con a convention uh, integrated by 50% of members of Congress and 50% of people elected uh, for the convention as such. Second alternative, 100% of the members fully elected by the citizens. 
What was the response of the of the citizens of the of the plebiscite? A overwhelming majority wanted a fully elected members of the convention. So the first of all, this is going to be a change of the let's say the the political team, the traditional political team. It's not going to be, uh, I mean, uh, represented fully in the in the in the convention. Uh, second, second, second characteristic. This is going to be a convention with absolutely parity in gender. Fifty percent of the convention would be women. Fifty percent of the convention would be men. Today, the only less than twenty percent of the of the of the members of the house and of the members of the senate are women. So this is going to be also a profound change in terms of the representation in this convention. And third, uh, we are we are uh, having in, we we push forward and we, we we pass bills and regulations to help the participation of independent Cindy, let's say members that are not members of party in the process. And I think I'm not wrong if I can tell you that today. Half of the candidates are members of parties, and half of the of the of the of the candidates running for office are not members of parties. So this is also going to be a change in terms of the traditional teams. And then, and fourth uh, characteristics, we are going to have eleven percent of the convention reserved to to indigenous people, following some sort of the of, of the of the system of New Zealand. We are going to have reserved seats for indigenous people. So uh, we're going to have a fully elected body. This is going to be on gender parity. Uh, independents have the possibility to be members of the convention, and we're going to have reserved um, seats for indigenous people. All, all these four characteristics help in the sense of having, let's say, of narrowing instead of widening the gap between civil society and elites. Minister Alaman, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for such complete answers. We look forward to staying in touch and to engage, uh, to engaging you and, and others of your colleagues on other items in, in the Chilean agenda that are also of critical importance to the Latin American program in terms of conservation, land and marine conservation, um, and climate change. So thank you again. This episode of To The Point was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. For more on this subject, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org lap. Thanks for listening.